Hi, I'm Tina Desiree Berg, and welcome to The 34. in the southern part of the state has not been impacted by COVID. Our streams run orange and black. What do you say about all in wonderful West Virginia? Some of the cleanest water in the world is gone. It's destroyed. Who's going to clean up the mess when Paul's gone, Senator? And fracking is not acceptable either. We're tired of this kind of thing. We want clean and safe jobs, and we want a future for our children. I'm tired of these people want a job too. Yes, they do. They deserve a job. They deserve a job. We all deserve jobs. You tell me. We're going to agree to disagree. Let me ask you Senator. Wait, one second. One second. What makes the coal mine more important than every child in West Virginia that has to do with dirty water? Another victory for Bernie Sanders in West Virginia does little to help his delegate count, but underscores the enduring strength of his contrasting message to Clinton. Donald Trump sweeps West Virginia and Nebraska, but his wins are overshadowed by news he is sending a prominent white journalist as a delegate to the summer convention. Sanders focused his message on Trump, saying it is not enough to just reject the Republican candidate, saying, this is an opportunity to define a progressive vision for America. In a West Virginia exit poll, 43% of Sanders supporters said they'd sooner vote for Trump than Clinton in November. The Guardian's Lucia Graves says, West Virginia, so what? Clinton didn't need it anyway. Last week in Los Angeles, I attended a Justice Democrats event called New Year's Revolution. And at that event, I met a pair of political candidates from West Virginia that are trying to change the course of West Virginian politics. Paula Jean Swearingen is running for office, and she is going to primary Joe Manchin. And Manchin has a horrible record, as any progressive knows. And Matthew Kerner is running for a delegate seat in the House of Delegates. Welcome, Matthew, and welcome, Paula Jean. Paula Jean, at that event, you shared a story about growing up a coal miner's daughter poor in West Virginia. Can you share that story with my listeners and also a little bit about your background? Yeah, I'm Paula Jean Swearingen. I'm from Mullins, West Virginia. Um, when I was born, my mother brought me home to a community called Iroquois, West Virginia. And during that time frame, um, our water was orange with a blue and purple film. It had black specks. Um, our watershed was called the Sweeney Watershed. Um, essentially, we drank acid mine drainage. Um, I thought my hair was red until my stepdad got laid off in the coal mines and we moved to North Carolina when I was 12 years old. Um, grew up down there. Um, most of my family worked in the coal industry, including my grandfather, my father, my stepdad, most of my uncles. When my grandpa got back black lung, we ventured back to West Virginia um, to help with the family and take care of him and my grandmother. Um, my grandfather suffocated to death with black lung. 
my dad had black lung and he got lung cancer and he passed away at 54 years old. My stepdad has heart disease. He's had open heart surgery. He's had black lung and most of my uncles have black lung. Um, when I moved back, um, I noticed something was wrong. I've always been a proud coal miner's daughter and I'm still proud of my family, but I'm not proud of what the coal industry has done to Appalachia. Uh, mm-hmm. My neighbor, her name was Destiny. She was eight years old. She popped up with a rare form of bone cancer um, with the community next to mine. It was Surveyor. Um, I was living in Leicester, West Virginia. Another little girl popped up with a, the same type of cancer. I started asking questions, and they said it was um, probably environmental, but they couldn't pinpoint the cause. Mm-hmm. Um, they have to wash coal with a couple hundred chemicals, and it creates a byproduct called slurry. Right. how they get rid of that byproduct is through big earthen dams called slurry impalements, or mm-hmm. they inject it um, underneath our towns and communities and abandoned mines. That was the case in, in Leicester. Studies wasn't done. Um, if there was connection to the slurry and the cancer, but around my two, two blocks in that small community, I could count eight houses of, uh, where people had cancer, including children. So by that point, wow. I was a single mom, dot man, found out about mountaintop removal. Um, mountaintop right. removal is a form of coal mining is what they call it, but they blow up mountains with dynamite. Um, mm-hmm. It actually takes jobs from underground coal miners. Um, mm-hmm. Its mechanization is taking jobs, actually. Um, it, it only takes... Um, what used to take a, you know, a couple hundred men to mine underground, you know, it was dynamite and a few men running excavators. Wow. Uh, mountaintop removal is very destructive to Appalachia as well because when they blow up the mountain, um, the silica from the explosion goes into the air. So not only do we have to worry about silicosis of coal miners and their lungs, but now there's a risk of it being in their children's lungs as well. It is loud, destructive, and highly controversial, the mountaintop mining operations of West Virginia. Bye, Mike Kanga, 180, and departure. As you fly south from Charleston, mountaintop mines appear quickly on the horizon. They'll dynamite very carefully down to the coal, harvest the coal, and then they'll start the dynamite process over again. Our pilot has been flying over these mountains for a decade as a volunteer for South Wings, an environmental group opposed to the practice of mountaintop mining, which arranged this aerial tour. I've been watching this one go down since I've been flying up here, and it is a very dramatic change. It was high and impressive, and now it's low and flat. In West Virginia, almost one-third of the 158 million tons of coal removed from these mountains in 2006 came from mountaintop mining. Critics want it stopped. They say the practice pollutes the surrounding water and the dust presents health hazards to nearby communities. Um, they buried over a couple hundred uh, streams um, with mountaintop removal because they take the overburden of the mountain and they put it in what they call a valley seal, and they've covered rivers and streams, and it also comes oh people's water supplies. So this practice basically also takes jobs away, even though they sell it as something other than that, and it's entirely environmentally terrible. Yeah, it's, it's a whole lot cheaper than, um, you know, they don't have to pay for the labor. 
dynamite's a whole lot cheaper. It's, it's, it's a whole lot cheaper for the coal industry is why they chose that method. They say that they can't get to the, you know, other seams of coal, but they can. So it's a lie that okay. they tell so they can get by with it. Um, out of finding out what was happening in my community, there's places like Printer, West Virginia, that still deals with water issues. A slurry impoundment actually caused water pollution in that community. It's a small town, about 29 houses. Most everybody in that community's had brain cancer, oh their gallbladders were moved. Um, Dr. Michael Hendricks has done some peer review studies. He's with WVU, and they have proven during Mount Top, around mountaintop removal sites there's higher rates of asthma, birth defects, cancer. Um, so it's causing a lot more health issues. So it's it's. Mm-hmm. It's not just the worry of your loved one being buried miles deep in a mountain or getting cancer or black lung right, anymore. Right. You know, children are getting sick with those diseases. Um, Jim right. Justice, one of the biggest polluting coal barons in West Virginia, was elected in as my Democratic governor. The Democratic Party got behind him. He was a Republican mm-hmm. two months prior to running for office. Um, then he mm-hmm. became a Democrat. He won because we've... For a couple of decades, we've not had a Republican governor, so he ran as a Democrat to win that election, and he got the Democratic Party to get behind him. And he changed his party affiliation. Um, Donald Trump mm-hmm. came up for a rally, and he's a Republican again. Let me just say this to you as bluntly as I can say it. West Virginia, at the altar, when we had it done, like it or not like it, but the Democrats walked away from me. Now, today I will tell you with lots of prayers and lots of thinking, today I will tell you as West Virginians, I can't help you anymore being a Democrat governor. So tomorrow, I will be changing my registration to Republican. Wow. Um, But uh, before that, you know, finding out about what was going on in my communities, worrying about if my kids would get cancer every day, because one of Jim Justice's mines, mountaintop removal, three miles from my house, and he's putting silica dust in my kids' lungs every day. And after finding out about Destiny's cancer prior to um, what's going on now, I became a social and economic justice activist. I've done everything I could. I worked with every organization that I, I could, um, begging for clean water, begging for clean air, begging for clean and safe jobs. I've you know, spoke to rallies. I've lobbied. I've spoke to the United Nations. Um, Jim Justice was part of my awakening. Um, the second part of my awakening was, um, but I had got off work one day. I've been a poor single mom, coal miner's daughter, working as an accounting clerk for a small business. And somebody told me that Joe Manchin was hosting a town hall right after I got off work. Right. So I got an IOU at the tolls and um, decided to go down and see if I could talk to him and um, see if I could reason with him and, and beg him again like I have before. Mm-hmm. And while I was there, I was talking about losing my family and the heartache that it's caused, being a coal miner's daughter, 
telling him, uh, you know, my worry about clean water, about clean air, telling him that we wanted clean and safe jobs. Right. And he tried to bid the coal miners in the crowd against me, and he told me we would have to agree to disagree. Prior to that, I had some colleagues um, in the activist community. He pretty much told them if we didn't like it, we could primary him and we could vote him out. And the thing about the political (laughs) climate here in West Virginia is they're all funded by the same corporate funders. Right. And the biggest donor has been the coal industry. Um, Right. I mentioned his second top donor is Mylan Pharmaceutical, and his daughter's the CEO of Mylan, and we're dealing mm-hmm. with one of the biggest addiction epidemics in the country. Now, uh, we have a special investigation of what has become a plague in our country. About two million Americans are hooked on prescription painkillers, and in 2012, 259 million prescriptions were written. That's one bottle for every American adult. How could that be? Jim Axelrod and producer Ashley Velli found out in West Virginia, a state that is attempting a drastic solution, allowing addicts to sue the doctors who got them hooked. So you would spend $1,000 a week. Right. 17 years ago, Willis Duncan's life changed forever when a coal mining accident left him with a crushed sternum and broken ribs. If I didn't have 10 pain pills, wouldn't go to work. Bottom line. Changed your life. Changed everything. Duncan developed a lifelong addiction to painkillers when his doctor's only treatment was a never-ending supply of pills. And the only time that you went in to see a doctor was to get your pills raised. Hang on a second. You go in to get looked at, Mm -hmm. but the examination isn't done by a doctor? No. Duncan would wait for hours to be seen for just a few minutes at this clinic where 150 patients lined up every day for pain med prescriptions. Did you ever say to a doctor, this has gotten out of hand and I, I need help? Never, because you done got used to them and you didn't know how to function without them. This cash-only operation allowed doctors to clear as much as $100,000 a week. We're here in Mingo County, West Virginia executing a search warrant. The clinic was raided and shut down in 2010. There's the exam room. These are what passed for exam rooms. Main office. Piles of trash and files, loose prescription pads, syringes, and starving birds stuck in roach-infested cages. Uh, That's a floor set. Hundreds of patient records were seized, along with thousands of undated and pre-signed prescriptions for addictive pain meds like Vicodin, Xanax, and Lortab. for Vicodin? The doctor in charge went to jail for six months for negligence. Just do kind of a drive-by, take a look at the place. DEA agent Gary Newman is part of a team currently investigating dozens of doctors, pharmacies, and distributors throughout the state. We are talking, in a certain sense, drug traffickers, and they are doing nothing but writing and cranking out prescription after prescription after prescription. They're pushers. They truly are. We have, you know, on the Republican ballot for the Senate now, we have Evan Dinkins. He's funded by the same funders. Patrick Morsey, he's our attorney general. He's been a lobbyist for the pharmaceutical industry, and his wife still is. And also, Don Blankenship. He, um, in 2012, I don't know if you know, but there was a methane explosion um, in Boone County, the uh, UBD mine. 
he was responsible for killing essentially 29 miners. Former Massey Energy CEO Don Blankenship has been sentenced to one year in prison. Blankenship was sentenced in federal court in Charleston today. Judge Irene Berger sentenced Blankenship to the maximum sentence of one year in prison for the misdemeanor charge he was convicted of on December 3rd. Blankenship was found guilty of misdemeanor conspiracy to willfully violate mine safety standards at the Upper Big Branch Mine. An explosion there killed 29 miners in 2010. Blankenship will also pay a $250,000 fine and spend one year on supervised release once he serves his year in prison. Blankenship's attorney says they plan to file an appeal. He's still on probation. He lives in uh, California. I don't know how mm -hmm. he's legally allowed to be on the ballot, but he's also on the ticket to run for Senate here in West Virginia. We've dealt with decades of singular industry-based economy, and there's no plan B except for gas. And we, I'd hate to see other parts of the state go down the, down the same path as the coal fields. When you turn on your light switch, it, it's fueled by the blood of my people. Um, right. Billions of dollars have went out of the state for coal. The Industrial Revolution was built on the backs of coal miners. And we're one of the sickest and poorest states in the nation. Yep. Where Mother Jones organized in Cabin Creek, the roads are inaccessible. People live in unimaginable impoverished conditions. Yep. And they're living around mountaintop removal sites and the water's polluted. It's a disgrace. The labor struggles that our ancestors, like the miners of Blair Mountain, the fight mate one, um, Joe Hill, all those labor struggles, our ancestors fought and won. I know they're turning over in their graves and I'm bound and determined to bring democracy back to West Virginia and make sure that our ancestors' uh, legacy doesn't go, you know, die in vain. I don't think it should end in this generation. Bernie Sanders won all 55 counties in West Virginia. Our superdelegates voted against the will of the people of the Democratic Party. The Democratic yep. Party is just as corrupt here as the Republican Party. Yep. I don't, I, we have nothing else to do. If we don't invest in ourselves, we don't run for office in West Virginia on a local and federal level. West Virginians are not going to have nothing. I fought for many years so my children could stay here. I asked them to leave. I'm going to continue to fight for my kids, but it's, it's a disgrace that anybody would live in the conditions of some of the people here in, on, on American yeah. soil. You are fierce. You are well, fierce I'm out of town. I'm a mom. I mean, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? I'm, I, I can't. I worry every day if my children's going to get cancer. Yeah. You know, we live no, under this real. stigma that we don't have no teeth, no shoes, no brains. Well, I have news for America. We're not collateral damage. We're not, we're not no. going to take it anymore. No, girl, you're fierce. I was so glad that you were at that Justice Democrats, Democrats event. As you know, I made a beeline for you when I saw you. And when I first uh, was introduced to you as an activist, I had seen that video where you were uh, confronting Joe Manchin, and you were fierce. It was great. And on that note, I wanted to ask Matt, uh, how did you get involved in politics? Were you inspired by Paula Jean? Is, uh, is that how you got involved with her activism and you decided to join in, or was there something else that happened? Um, yeah, I was definitely inspired by her. Um, her and a friend of mine, um, Mike Pushkin, who's been in the legislature for a few years now. I've known Mike for probably a decade. In my work path, um, I work in the addiction field, and I came into that line of work um, through my own recovery. I am a person living in long-term recovery from a substance use disorder. 
which okay. means that uh, for, for me, it means that for about 12 years, uh, I haven't had a drink or used any mood or mind altering substances. And uh, what that has done for me, what, what recovery has done for me is it allowed me to take um, the absolute darkest moments of my life. Um, I, I've been incarcerated. I've been homeless. Uh, and turns into my greatest asset so that now I can help other people through the recovery process that's, um, you know, done so much for me. And as I, I'm now the executive director of an organization called Opportunity House Incorporated that uh, runs, it's a recovery community organization. We have several housing programs and we provide recovery support services for um, entire community. And in the process of doing that, I uh, just became aware uh, of how corrupt our system is. Uh, I got right. to look behind the, the, the curtain, so to speak. And uh, mm-hmm. yeah, two of the most glaring examples in West Virginia are our Attorney General, Patrick Morrissey, mm-hmm. um, who in 2013 inherited a lawsuit against a, a bunch of pharmaceutical distributors who had sent millions and millions of pills into the state of West Virginia uh, without wow. filing. There was enough to, for everybody in West Virginia to have 450 pain pills a year. Patrick Morsey and his family lobbying firm in Washington, D.C., Cardinal Health. Cardinal, it's not our state bird. It's the pusher of all these pills. He and his family lobbying firm have made millions and millions in his 18 years as a D.C. lobbyist and Hill staffer. They have flooded our state with these pain pills that have devastated people in West Virginia. If you want to see what the problem is, it is the pill pushers. And Patrick Morsey has represented those people for years and made millions. You know, they did that without uh, using the prescription drug database that was available so that nobody really knew what was going on. So he inherits this uh, lawsuit. Patrick Morrissey, up uh-huh. until the point he became attorney general, was a lobbyist for the pharmaceutical industry. Oh, well, there you go. One of, one of his clients um, who, who paid him $250,000 in the year before he became attorney general was a company called Cardinal Health. Mm-hmm. Um, when he took office, he said, oh, I'm not going to have any contact with these people. Everything that happens in this lawsuit, you know, I, I'm going to be hands off with this. But five months after he took office, he actually met with two executives and an attorney for Cardinal Health. And, and when that became public, he said, well, you know, really, um, you know, we, we got to talk to all these people so we can work this out so we can figure out how these things aren't going to happen again. And uh, again, said, okay, I promise not to do that anymore, though. Cardinal Health is also one of his wife's firms, who is also a lobbyist for the pharmaceutical industry, one of his wife's firm's largest clients. Um, since right. he's taken office, they have paid his wife over $2 million. Wow. Um, so so he, he completes these lawsuits. He said, oh, look at this. I got $20 million from Cardinal Health. And oh, my God. For for a state full of people who who are among the poorest in the nation, $20 million sounds like a a lot lot of money. Yeah. But when you look at Cardinal Health, Cardinal Health has annual revenues of $130 billion. That means it's $356 million a day. So $20 million (laughs) took an hour and 15 minutes of their revenue for a year. 
an hour and 15 uh, minutes. Wow. Uh, and, and then when that money was reallocated to be used for new treatment facilities, uh-huh. uh, one of the requirements for those new treatment facilities was they had to accept a medically assisted treatment. They had to accept, you know, whether it's Suboxone or Methadone, and there's a place for that. There's a lot of different pathways to recovery. Everybody recovers differently, and we need to have lots of things available. But that was a mandated part of this, this these grand awards. Right, right, right. That $20 million. So basically, we took $20 million from Cardinal Health, and we're going to give it back to the pharmaceutical industry over a period of time by buying drug replacement drugs so they're they are uh, wait that's absolutely crazy so basically they're still they're selling the drugs that are getting people addicted the opioids etc and now they're also going to sell you the drug that takes you off the addiction i saw things like that another issue we have is a bill crouch who was appointed by our new governor uh, Mm -hmm. to be the secretary of department of health and human resources now he also Surprise, was a lobbyist right. for the healthcare industry. Um, right. Worked for, and I, and I believe has an ownership stake in a lot of um, long-term care facilities, nursing homes, things like that. Um, and so he becomes the secretary of DHHR and suddenly wants to immediately sell all of our state hospitals, all of the, the mental institutions, um, which exists because... That's tragic. You know, with our current health care system, you know, whether it's addiction or mental health, those people mm-hmm. get dehumanized and marginalized and their care is not funded because that's an easy right. part of the population for health care providers to attack and to withdraw treatment from. Indeed. You see uh, drug addiction as a public health problem and not a criminal one, Correct. Oh, absolutely. Um, yeah, I do. Too, criminalization so d- d- does not work. I get asked that a lot. Um, you know, there's a pretty big movement in West Virginia now. We've passed medical marijuana in the last legislative session, but made it wow. impossible to implement for another two years and made it prohibitively expensive so that an average mm-hmm. person can't get involved in it. And it really, right. overall, I think before long it's probably going to be legal federally so we actually have a limited amount of time to make a move and kind of make a little bit of money from that as a state uh, right and maybe use some money to fund the addiction problem that we have right now um last year we just went from 41 to 46 people per hundred thousand who died from overdoses in our state which is double wow. Our next, well, it's not quite double, but the next leading state is like 26 per 100,000. So yeah, we lead lot. by far in overdose deaths. I mean, it's the leading cause of death in West Virginia now. And, you know, we've corrupted that. We could be funding that with um, legalized marijuana with just decriminalization, right. sort of like Portugal right. does. Um, you know, right. 80-some percent of our prison population is there for a drug or drug-related crime. And, Absolutely. Uh, legalization or decriminalization has nothing to do with addiction. I mean, a certain percentage no. of the population is always going to be addicted. And you know, exactly. I get to talk about this now. Part of, you know, one of the, for me, one of the good parts about me being in long-term recovery and being about it is that I can say that I know with absolute certainty that nobody has ever been on their way to the heroin dealer or any other drug <laughs> dealer and suddenly said, 
oh my god this is illegal i'm going right. home <laughs> that's not right? how it works it's yeah, not how it works legal now. or not legal <laughs> is not part of the equation i mean no. I, I get asked no. often to um, explain what addiction's like and for somebody who hasn't had that experience the the best analogy right. i've been able to come up with is that um you know the, these cravings and how unbearable right. it is is that we all experience cravings but we don't notice them if if whatever we're craving is fulfilled so if we're all in right. a room together we're, we're all craving air but nobody notices it because there's plenty right. of air and we can all breathe but if somebody came up behind you and put a plastic bag over your head you would suddenly realize that you had a powerful craving to breathe air and you would do anything to just get one more breath you know, that's exactly right. When I talk about legalization, I often ask people, if heroin was legal, would you all of a sudden start shooting it up? And the response is always no, because that's not what drives addiction. And uh, legalizing it isn't going to stop people from, from wanting it if they're addicted to it. So this is why we have to treat it as a public health situation. It's a way to... Um feed people into the prison industrial complex and yeah. there's so many you read my private prisons. We we have industries that are operating in prisons. There's a ton of call centers now that are operating in prisons and they're wow. paying people yeah. pennies an hour uh, instead right. of having to pay a living wage on the outside. So we've turned um, you know, a whole class of people who don't have either the, the, the resources to get into treatment and recovery because that can be prohibitively expensive and there aren't enough beds or people who don't have enough money to get their way out of, you know, criminal charges based right. solely on addiction. They, they get fed into this prison system. And they become slave labor. Um, you know, right. they become, you know, funds for private prisons. We had a That's right. judge not long ago in our neighboring state of Pennsylvania who finally he went to prison because he was essentially selling kids to a private prison system. An unprecedented case of judicial corruption is unfolding in Pennsylvania. Several hundred families have filed a class action lawsuit against two former judges who've pleaded guilty to taking bribes in return for placing youths in privately owned jails. Judges Mark Ciavarella and Michael Conahan are said to have received $2.6 million for ensuring that juvenile suspects were jailed in prisons operated by the companies Pennsylvania Child Care and a sister company, Western Pennsylvania Child Care. Some of the young people were jailed over the objections of their probation officers. An estimated 5,000 juveniles have been sentenced by Sia uh, Varela since the scheme started in 2002. In addition to the jailing of the youths, the judges also admitted to helping, quote, facilitate the construction of private jails. The U.S. Attorney for the Middle District of Pennsylvania, Martin Carlson, unveiled the charges last month. These payments were made to the judges, it is alleged, in return for discretionary acts by the judges favoring these businesses, acts relating to the construction, expansion, operation of these juvenile facilities, and acts relating to the placement of juveniles in these facilities.
On Thursday, Judges Chivarella and Conahan entered guilty pleas on charges of wire fraud and income tax fraud. They're currently free on a $1 million bail bond pending sentencing. Their plea agreements call for jail sentences of more than seven years. No charges have been filed against the private prisons that paid the bribes. Pennsylvania's Supreme Court has appointed an outside judge review all the cases tried by Chivarella and Conahan. But the case has prompted calls for broader reforms of the juvenile justice system in Pennsylvania nationwide. We're joined now by two of the thousands of of youths jailed by the corrupt judges. On the line with us from Scranton, Pennsylvania, 18-year-old Jamie Quinn is with us. She spent more than 11 months in a privately run juvenile prison camp after being sentenced by Judge Mark Chivarella as a first-time offender. Also on the line, the nearby town of Wilkes-Barre is 22-year-old Kurt Kruger, another first-time offender. He spent more than four months in a privately run prison. Uh, juvenile prison camp, after also being sentenced by Judge Chivarella. And joining us in a studio in Philadelphia is Bob Schwartz. He's a co-founder and executive director of the Juvenile Law Center, which helped expose the corrupt judges and is now involved in the class action suit brought on behalf of the jailed youth's families. We asked PA Childcare, the main private jail company linked to the bribes, to come on the broadcast. We were directed to an attorney who didn't respond to our request. Bob Schwartz, let's start with you. When did all this uh, begin to be revealed? How did it all happen? Uh, thanks, Amy, and uh, thanks for having Kurt, Jamie, and me on your show. Uh, this has been going on, uh, we believe, in Luzerne County since 2003. It came to Juvenile Law Center's attention a couple of years ago when we heard from the mother of one of the girls whom we ended up representing, a young woman named Hillary Transu, who was uh, brought into court, found guilty, sent away for a internet parody of an assistant principal at her high school. Her mother found us, and when we were able to bring a habeas corpus petition on Hillary's behalf, she told our attorneys that she wasn't the only one who had been locked up by Judge Chivarella, that there were lots of other kids in the same situation. That was a couple of years ago, and we began investigating and found that Luzerne County had uh, half of the waivers of counsel uh, in Pennsylvania, in, of all the cases in which lawyers were waived by young people in juvenile court. Hillary had, uh, unknown to her, signed a paper, her mother had signed a paper, giving up her right to a lawyer. That made the 90-second hearing that she had in front of Judge Chivarella uh, pretty much of a kangaroo court. So she was sent away. We investigated, and last year, about a year ago, brought a petition before the Pennsylvania Supreme Court asking them to take a look at all of the cases in which kids were tried and uh, adjudicated delinquent and many sent away without a lawyer. Uh, we thought that was the problem. That turned out to be the tip of the iceberg. Uh, when we filed, it turned out that the FBI began its investigation and uh, found the corruption that you spoke about at the top of this segment. And just very briefly, Hillary, um, explain what she did, a cartoon? She had done a, I think, a uh, My uh, Space parody uh, of her, uh, of an assistant principal, a paragraph or two uh, with uh, uh, internet humor of uh, adolescent variety, uh, finishing by saying, I hope that Mrs. 
Smith or Jones uh, has a sense of humor. It turned out that the assistant principal didn't, uh, we gather at least, complain to the police who filed a harassment petition against Hillary. This is the kind of case, like Kurtz and like Jamie's, that never should have been in court in the first place, uh, let alone get to a trial. Uh, juvenile court is not designed for this kind of adolescent misbehavior. Uh, the cases should have been diverted entirely. Instead, uh, Hillary and Kurt and Jamie and thousands of others were used by the court for profit, while uh, many people over many years stood by watching. Sending, he was taking kickbacks for send for sentencing kids to prisons for for, for nothing. And uh, yeah, yeah, I just started to see more and more and more of this stuff, and um, yeah. nobody was doing anything about it, uh, or very few. Again, a friend in the legislature, uh, Mike Pushkin, he's been wonderful. Uh, he he's really taken on leadership and addressed a lot of these issues, but, um, you know, he can't do this alone. We need to get more right. and more people in the legislature who are awake and who see these things and, uh, you know, Absolutely. aren't so depressed about all of it that they just throw their hands up and say, well, there's nothing we can do. So seeing right. people like I thought, you know, with my background, you know, I've been arrested, I've been homeless, all this, but the, the odds of me being able to successfully run for office were, you know, slim to none. But but then to see people like Mike, to see people like Paula Jean step up, you know, it's just normal, everyday working people. Amen. Getting into the legislature and making a difference, you know, not bringing, you know, hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars of corporate money into the process with them, but bringing common sense and bringing hope Absolutely. for normal people. Right. So I wanted to actually circle back around and talk with Paula Jean about this as well, because I know that um, criminal reform and private prisons and criminal justice are also planks of your campaign. Uh, so here in California, Kamala Harris was somebody who defended involuntary servitude. We actually had a situation okay, where so it's similar. the state of California was told they had to release uh, some of the inmates because of overcrowding. It was considered unconstitutional. She she went to, or her uh, what, some of her attorneys went to court and tried to argue against this, uh, claiming that it would uh, interrupt the labor pool. Now, in California, we don't necessarily have private prisons currently. We did in the past, but we don't now. And it's still a problem. So these are folks that are firefighter, firefighters, et cetera. But in the past, you've also had corporations like Victoria's Secret using uh, private prison labor. And, you know, these folks are getting paid six cents a minute. It's insane. And it's a twofold problem. Not only is that ridiculous uh, akin to slave labor, uh, it also takes away well-paid jobs from the general population. So it's a twofold problem. So what are your thoughts on this? Well, definitely having voices for the people in the Senate is going to help. And definitely having somebody that's going to have a backbone that's not going to be, you know, that's going to stand up to these corporations that are creating these industrial prison complexes. Um, I think it's going to take all of us, like I said, on a local and federal level, as, as you know, as one senator, I don't think I can do it. But right now, we've got a lot of people, too, 
that are running for Congress um, with Justice Democrats and branding Congress and other organizations and air revolution from a local to a federal level. And I think it's going to take all of us. I don't think it's going to happen overnight. Um, but if the people want change, they're going to have to vote people in that are going to bring right. change. And we have to um, overturn Citizens United and get all the money out of politics. I mean, I think that's the, that's the biggest thing. But the most important thing, too, is to make sure that we do elect officials. And if I reach the Senate, I'm definitely going to be a voice for the people. Um, you look at Amy um, in Nevada um, with Justice Democrats. When her right, right. Met, it was an instant emotional connection. I actually met her before she had announced her candidacy. And the thing about it is, is we need men and women on a local and federal level standing up. There's nothing, yeah. no more fierce than a mother standing up for her child. We know mm-hmm. that, you know, like Amy and myself, we're going to be advocates for Medicare for All because she lost her daughter to a blood clot um, right. and was denied health care. Um, every mom's going to stand up for a child, and every mom's going to make good decisions for every child in America. Um, and that's what we need. We need good, strong representatives. We need the working, a working class representatives representing the working class. Um, they've been very strategic in taking over um, politics in our country. And in West right. Virginia, you know, we used to live on company script, company, uh, you know, live in company housing. Um, we had our own capitalist society here. And they've been mm-hmm. very, very strategic on taking us over in a different way. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that they've underestimated Americans, and I think it's been a big awakening, especially with the Trump administration. Um, right. For one, I think he was the prime example. I think he benefited America the most because we looked at our dignitaries as better than us, and they, we didn't think that we could be decision makers. But my God, if Donald Trump can be our president, we definitely can run for office. You know, at least right? the rest <laughs> of us can form a sentence outside of a fourth grade level. <laughs> Um, but, it's you know, that's just true. what it's going to take is, is you know, it, it, it takes a group of people to, to write legislation. And, you know, let's be honest, it, you know, somebody in, in Congress and in Senate, they have staff behind them, too, helping them write their legislation. And there's not going to be one person on my staff e- either that's not going to stand up for every American. Um, it's it's going to take all of us, and we're fighting back. And if they if they haven't noticed, the revolution has started. And if we don't win this time, we're going to keep going. Speaking of Medicare for All, uh, which is something I strongly support, we had a state bill here in California um, that got tabled. It didn't get passed. It got tabled by Rendon, who is the uh, speaker, because our even though we have a majority of Democrats in the state, we are a strong Democratic state. Many of our Democrats take corporate money. So this was... He's taking money from health insurers, big pharma, et cetera. So the bill got tabled. Um, but having said that, do you think it makes sense if we can't get the federal level Medicare for all done to go state by state, which is similar to what they did in uh, Canada? And if so, do you think West Virginia would be willing to take that on and try to pass a state bill? I believe so. If we continue trying to, you know, electing representatives to represent us. I don't know, understand why every every Democrat's not got behind Bernie bill, Bernie's bill already. Um, my opponent, he says he's not even read it yet. How long is it taking to read wow. it? Wow. Yeah. Um, 
you know, it, it, it's like I said, I mean, it's elementary. We have to get people in that are not service, servicing their corporate donors and they're actually serving the people that they're supposed to represent. And, I, you know, right. I recommend to anybody that's looking to vote for any, any candidate, they should research them. They should look, who look at who their funders are. And I honestly, I won't endorse or get behind any candidate that's taken any type of corporate funds. If I right. ever reach the Senate and I put my feet on my desk, I'm going to owe nobody but the people that funded me to get me there, and that'll be the people of the United States. Indeed, Paula. In fact, it blows my mind when voters, when people argue that there's no quid pro quo involved with these donate donations. Of course there is. Why do you think corporations and special interests donate to congressmen? They donate because they expect something in return. So this is just a naive viewpoint. There is quid pro quo, and it also exists in the Democratic Party. So uh, having said that, the gentleman that you are running for office again, against, uh, Joe Manchin, has taken a lot of corporate money. In fact, I believe he was a member of ALEC uh, for years. ALEC is uh, Square One. I, this is U.S. Chamber money. It's it's a group that pretty much writes bills on behalf of business interests and hands the bills to the congressman. And in fact, many times you've seen uh, congressional members get busted with the verbatim bills that they've uh, entered in that are written by ALEC and they are verbatim word for word what the business interests wanted. So this is the stuff that's going on. Uh, what are local voters responding to there in West Virginia? I think you have a lot of support outside of the state of West Virginia because people in the country, Democrats in general, are just sick of Joe Manchin siding with Republicans on all of these votes that he sides with them on. But that doesn't necessarily mean you can win an election in your state. You need the voters in your state to respond uh, to the arguments that you're making. How's the majority of the people that I spoke to, they're, they're, they're behind it. Um, Joe Manchin, he's been our Secretary of State. He's been our Governor and now our Senator. And I think since um, this election season, I think he's worked harder for us and I've seen him work for us for a long time. And that's because of the resistance, not only from my campaign, but because of the progressive resistance in West Virginia. Mm. Um, the most opposition that I've received, honestly, is from the establishment Democrats. Yeah, they don't want to see Joe Manchin go because, you know, it's rumored that Belinda Biafor, our state chair of the Democratic Party, is Joe Manchin's first cousin. And mm. they claim that they're supposed to be neutral during primaries. They haven't. They've already, you know, showed some biases with Joe Manchin. And it's been that way for a long time. Back in the 90s, Charlotte Pritt um, won against Joe Manchin um, as governor in the primary. And they went as far as even pulling some of her literature out of materials and that mailers as they sent out. And right wow. after that, Joe Manchin sided with the Republicans instead of getting behind her. And a lot of people have asked me if I'll get behind him if I lose the primary. I mean, I don't plan on losing, but that's a hard question because yeah. you think about UBB and the 29 miners that died, and I think about my past and the years when I fought Don Blankenship, but I wasn't always fighting Don Blankenship. Um, for stability in my communities, for clean water, clean air, minor safety. But Joe Manchin ignored that, uh, you know, that they were doing during that time frame for minor safety and putting public health and safety last. And he was also right. getting donations from the industry and massing industry, and they were doing backdoor deals. And, you know, he has just as much blood on his hands as on Blankenship. Just because he didn't hold the gun didn't mean he didn't supply the bullets. And that goes mm -hmm. for every one of our incumbents. 
I can't say that I won't beat the street for Joe Manchin if Joe, if just by chance Joe Manchin wins the primary and Don Blankenship would, just because when you're talking about the lesser of two evils, Don Blankenship right. is a true evil man. But I believe West Virginia is not going to do that. I believe that we can do better. And, I, you know, as far as the establishment goes, well, you're handing it to a Republican. How much more um, un-Republican is Joe Manchin only during re-election time? Um, you know, he voted um, against the Republican tax reform, but how hard do people have to beg him not to, you know? Right, right, um, right. I mean, it's, it's a corrupt system, and a lot of people here are still afraid. I think with the establishment Democrats, too, they're afraid. But I've talked to Republicans, you know, the Democrats and independents, and a lot of people have gotten so fed up with the establishment, they've branched off right. to, like, the Mountain Party. Um, the majority of people that I talk to that are like me and through my travels are wanting change, um, but they definitely do not want us to beat down, you know, to put a dent in their good old boy network. I have news for them. We're coming. And we're not going to stop. Even if, you know, I lose this primary, we're still going to keep going. And I can't even say I won't run on the Mountain Party ticket or um, independent in the general. I can't say what sure. I'll do, but I know I can't sleep thinking that I could get behind Joe Manchin or Dog Blankenship because both of them have the, the blood of minors on their hands. And if you look at the Senate race and who's on the ballot, <clears throat> outside of a gentleman named Bo Copley in Logan County, he's a coal miner on the Republican ticket, him and I are the only ones on the ballot that do not have the blood of 29 minors on their hands or in their pocketbook. Indeed, Paula. I would imagine that that would resonate uh, with the voters. Um, so you're talking about some of the shenanigans that are going on. Uh, these shenanigans the, within the Democratic Party in your state. Um, now, I'm assuming that you have a similar setup as we do in California, where you have delegates, um, not House of Delegates like you have for your state as, uh, assembly body, but delegates within the party. Is it possible to try to get delegates elected to those lower positions inside the state party and have them work to change from within? Because I think um, that's something we've effectively done here in California, where we put progressive delegates into the state party and they're working on changing various things, whether it's rules and bylaws, et cetera, that benefit the establishment to things that are more uh, inclusive of progressive ideas, more inclusive of progressive anti-establishment candidates candidates, et cetera. Is that something that would be viable in West Virginia? Elected based on our county. There's delegates based, elected based on senatorial district and then in the state overall. 2016, West Virginia adopted one of the most progressive platforms in the nation. <clears throat> and then right after that, we got Jim Justice right. as our Democratic governor. And then they're still standing behind um, corporate Democrats like Joe Manchin, and they're standing right. behind people that don't even, that they're not even in line or even close to the party platform. And the right. people of West Virginia are tired. I mean, and that's another reason that Donald Trump won this state is because the super delegates of this state I voted see. against the will of the people. Bernie won all 55 counties. Natalie Kennett, right. Joe Manchin, Belinda Biafor, they voted for Hillary. So Democrats, wow. didn't, some of the Democrats, I'm sure, didn't even show up during the general. And then, right. you know, after they lost the hope and promise of Bernie Sanders, of course people are going to vote for Donald Trump because they lost their, they, you know, last summer when the market for coal was down, people right. lost their houses. They were losing their right. cars. They were going hungry. 
Right. And the market is not projected to come back like to the capacity that it once was ever. And they're not often a plan B. Like I said, you know, we've got right. fracking coming in this state, Marcellus Shell, the pipeliners, the pipe, you know, the pipelines are outsourcing the jobs. They don't even want to train the people in the communities for those jobs that they're going into. So they destroy their landscape. They, you know, they increases the cost of living that pollutes their water. And then they're still not seeing any kickback in their community in their in communities. And you know, yeah. that's that's my vision for this state is creating a diverse economic infrastructure for this state. We want wind and solar. We can manufacture those in West Virginia. If we would fully legalize cannabis, we would see a six to eight eight month economic return. We can have, right. you know, hydropower, biofuel, agriculture. Mountaintop removal sites, they're not fit for a rattlesnake. It's been proven that you can't really do any type of economic development on that land. It's, it's, it's useless. But hemp, right. hemp can be grown on those sites. It creates topsoil. It cleans the soil. You know, I'm, I'm sure initially it wouldn't be viable for essential oils, but we can, you know, we can make plastic. There's so many things that we can do in West Virginia. But the first thing that we have to do is get away from a singular industry-based economy and make sure that there's other economic opportunities here. Because when you have a singular industry-based economy, um, it's just anytime any type, of, any type of other economic development tries to come here, you know, that industry has influence, they prevent it, they get to do what they want. And we need to be more welcoming in this state. We have to build, you know, build up our roads. We have to have a better educational system. So. You know, Amazon and Facebook will want to come here. There's so right. many things and so many things wrong with the structure of this state. And the biggest problem is, too, our incumbents and our leaders, their vision is funneled into their funder's pocketbook. Yeah, absolutely. So I was actually noticing online, Paula, that uh, the pipelines were one of the biggest donators to Joe Manchin's uh, candidacy the last time around. So... That's not surprising, but if they are turning around and hiring folks from out of state for those jobs and not doing job training and putting locals into the jobs, that goes there goes their talking point. That was their main talking point that it would bring uh, jobs to West Virginia. So that's really jacked up. Um, so I want to pivot for a second to public education. I know part of your platform is also supporting tuition-free public university, which is something I soundly agree with. Uh, you know, a lot of folks don't realize that we once had a public university system that was mainly financed by the state. I benefited from that here at, at uh, in California. I went to attended UC school. I have a master's degree and I never had to take a loan out because it was almost entirely funded by the state. And the decrease in financing happened pretty rapidly. One of the things you specifically talk about is vocational training and tech training. And I think that's a really important piece of the puzzle that does not get discussed enough. Not everybody is destined to get a PhD in, in uh, biology, and I think there is an absolute place for vocational training in our publicly funded university system. I think that's really important. So to walk me through a little bit of uh, your program there. I think it should be implemented on a state and federal level, and I, I know here particularly in West Virginia, even our local schools are funded um, by the tax base in the community. So, so children that live in poor communities do not get the same type of education as children right. that live in more predominant, you know, more wealthier communities. And right. 
we all know that everybody's not going to get a PhD and they're not going to get an upper level education. And I think every part of the workforce is important. And if yeah. we, you know, we, even Republicans talk about a budget and we want a good budget. If we would quit overspending like with our military budget, we could afford Medicare for all and we could right, afford, right. we could afford to educate, you know, educational opportunities for our children. The thing about it is if we want America to survive and people want to live the American dream, then we have to pave the path to those opportunities. And when the wealthy, you know, when there's money sitting in banks that's not used for the 1%, and you talk about, you know, people like, well, you know, low-wage service jobs. We've seen here in West Virginia decades, you know, high-wage manufacturing jobs and coal jobs have evolved to low-wage service jobs. And that's what people – and healthcare. I mean, healthcare is a big business here, especially with people being so sick. But mm-hmm. most working families, with, you know, let's be honest, $15 an hour is not a livable wage, but they at least no. deserve $15. If you want your fries fresh, you think about right. that family. There's some families that have to work two and three jobs. We have mm-hmm. to pay the path to opportunity. And the and, and we can budget it. The money's there. It's just American is not thinking wisely because we, again, corporate money. We're serving right. our corporate, you know, our incumbents are serving our corporate donors. And these people want to get richer and richer and it's on our back. And lower class Americans do not have access to the opportunities that's supposed to be America. Exactly. We've destroyed equality of opportunity in the country. And a byproduct of that has been an increase in income inequality. Currently, the 1% controls 40% of the wealth. That is absolutely an insane statistic. And if the moral argument isn't enough to convince you, the economic one should. These folks are hoarding money at the top. They're not spending it. They're not circulating it. They're just hoarding it. So eventually, the system collapses when there's nobody left to buy widgets. They have widgets to sell, but nobody's going to buy them because there's no expendable income. They've taken, they've, they've extracted so much wealth from the majority of Americans that there's literally no middle class left. And this is where we're headed. And, and we definitely need an intervention in this area. And I think linked to this problem is money and politics, because these folks keep getting caught up in a vicious cycle in which they legislate to their benefit. So they legislate to their benefit, they make more money, they legislate to their benefit again, they make more money. So we've been in this cycle now for 30, 40 years. Um, Citizens United has made that worse. I know uh, you briefly mentioned money and politics and Citizens United, so I wanted to loop back around and discuss that. We have a bill here in California that's been uh, winding its way through the legislature, the uh, Clean Money Act, in which the candidates are going to have to disclose who their donors are. Um, we have American Promise that is working to amend the Constitution and uh, add a, add an amendment that would overturn Citizens United. But what specifically do you have idea-wise uh, to correct the problem? What specific areas do you want to work in if you win your uh, state, if you win your Senate election? We, I don't think we've seen any type of legislation go through or any efforts to, um, except for the grassroots efforts of trying to let candidates and that promise not to take um, corporate dollars and dollars from lobbyists, um, which is, is a good point. I can't, you know, I can't say on a local level how we'd implement that, but um, you know, on a federal level, overturning Citizens United and and making sure that we get money out of politics, I think it's going to be on a national effort. You know, it's a national effort too, and I think all Americans are tired of it. 
And again, I mean, I, I keep on beating that dead horse, but it's, it's going to take real representatives like my, Matt and myself, Mike, Mike Pushkin. Um, I want to name some other candidates. Um, Lisa Lucas, who's running for house here in West Virginia, Selena Vickers, um, James right. Cameron Elam. I mean, we have, I've never seen what I've, I've been seeing here in West Virginia. There's so many people stepping up and running for office. But there's still so many, so many uh, Republicans that are running unopposed. So if, if I could wow. say to anything to anybody in America, you can run for office. Please run for office on a local and federal level. Please run for office. We're not going to say, you know, I know that it, especially here in West Virginia, people lay complacent. It's, it's, it's such an environment that, you know, I've heard my mama say so many times throughout my life, well, the coal industry is going to do what they want to do. They've always done what they want to do. Right. And I look at the youth here in West Virginia, it seems like they're more awake than my generation. Um, so right. we do see a lot more of our youth stepping up and getting involved in politics. But I think we have a responsibility with this generation. Um, it, it kind of started with this generation and my parents' generation that they've done what they've done because the generation before that was fighting like hell. And I think we have a responsibility to pave the path for our children and get up off the couch and run for office because we created this mess and we should solve it so they can have a chance to, uh, for a better future. And also give them the hope and the ability to run for office and be good decision makers and create the, create the path that West Virginians deserve. Which is fantastic. Um, I co-sign on that. You know, I think I think we need to sort of take some responsibility for decisions that were made in the past. My generation and the generation above me, the baby boomers, made some uh, very selfish decisions that affected the current generations. We defunded our UC system, for example. When I was a freshman there, it was four hundred dollars a quarter, and now it's what five, six thousand dollars, maybe even more a quarter. So. Uh, these decisions where we walked up the ladder and kicked the ladder out underneath us have affected these kids and these kids are taking on more debt and they're not getting paid more than we did. Um, my first part-time job in college, I was paid $15 an hour and somehow or another, here we are in 2019 and the conversation is fight for 15. Are you kidding me? I mean, we've made absolutely no progress in 20 years on salaries basic salaries. And this isn't about skilled labor. This is about the minimum threshold that folks should be paid in order to get by. And you cannot pay rent and buy food on $15 an hour. It's, it's absolutely insane that this is the conversation that we're having. Uh, so we absolutely do need to correct some of that uh, privatization, some of that neoliberal policy that brought us to this place. <sighs> So um, on that note, I wanted to ask uh, both of you, are there other issues that we haven't discussed yet that are important to you, issues of, uh, issues that involve your platforms or just passions that you have? Um, share those. I'd just like to really quickly talk about one issue that we haven't talked about today, which is the sure. property rights. Um, it's okay. become a big issue in West Virginia because of all the uh, pipelines running through the area, uh, fracking. And what we're seeing is a couple issues. One is uh, forced pooling, where if all your neighbors decide that they want to lease their property to drilling companies, 
and it's more convenient for the, the drilling company to control this squared off area, um, you will be forced to give up your property whether you want to or not. Um, we're allowing corporations to exercise eminent domain for projects that aren't really for the public good. It's not like we're building a dam for flood control. And right. In that case, I've, seen, I, I've met people who locally had lost property that had been in their family going back, you know, pre-Civil War, and they wow. lost that because the dam was being built for an actual public good. Uh, what oh. we're seeing now is, is people being extorted uh, and told by these land companies that you'll either sell us your property at the price we name, we're going to exercise eminent domain and, and take it and you'll get practically nothing for it. Are um, you kidding me? I mean, no, no, I'm completely serious. We're, we're allowing, in some cases, now we have this big deal with China. Um, we also have other mm -hmm. foreign companies like Slumberzay. Mm -hmm. So we're allowing foreign corporations to exercise mm -hmm. eminent domain and take oh people's God. property away from them. It's been allowed to continue because those companies throw money around to legislators. Oh, and that's repeated coal field patterns because in the early 1900s, a lot of these, a lot of the coal industry came through the coal fields and bought a lot of the property. And what they did to people was, is if they felt that they owned their property, they uh, mm -hmm. they ended up owning their mineral rights underneath their property. So if they wanted to come in and mine underneath their property, or if they wanted the surface for coal. They have the ability to come in because they own the minerals, even though you own the surface. Uh, they can come in and destroy your property. Wow. So that's re repeated patterns and ways um, for them to come in and destroy um, people's land and take over, take take what they own. And you know, I've heard a lot of people like, you know, even like with mountaintop removal. Well, that's mm -hmm. the coal industry's mountain. They can do whatever they want to to it, which that may mm -hmm. be the case, but. When they're, you know, they're blowing people's houses off their foundations with the dynamite and they're destroying their landscape, it decreases their property values. They've come in and they've destroyed entire communities and their water supplies. There's um, a place called Lindy Town. That community no longer exists because they come in and they destroyed those people's property. Um, we have veterans that come in. I have, I have a friend that was out on active duty. She lived in Boone County, and the coal industry knocked her house off her foundation. So her and her husband came back on her dime, and they, you know, they went to the coal industry and said, hey, you destroyed our property. And they're like, tough luck. You can't tell us when it happens. And it happens all the time. It's either they, destroy, I, you know, they take their land, they destroy the property, you destroy your water. And the and people have no way of fighting back. And our government has sided with this industry. Oh my God! As activists, we had put in the streamline. We had fought for legislation and the streamline protection rule. The first thing they did with the Trump administration, and it was Joe Manchin's bipartisan effort. He stood with Shelley Moore Capito, Evan Jenkins, um, Donald Trump, and within minutes of years of fighting to get extra water protections, they signed it off within minutes. And, you know, you you would think that we would be protected here under the Clean yeah. Water Act, and we're not. I mean, it's not implemented. No. Even with the streamlined protection rule, it was like a parking ticket to the coal industry. They do what they want. It, it, wow. it, they 
factor it into the cost of into their budget. Um, they consider us collateral damage, and I, you know, they have even put out propaganda to bid us against each other. They called us tree huggers because we were begging for clean water and against the coal miners, and they put all this, you know, millions out to divide us. When they, you know, if they would have just worked within regulation, they could have kept our right. water supply supplies clean. Right. Um, it's a disgrace. People are actually treated like collateral damage here. And I think we have set the platform for cultural genocide across America. You know, right. you look at Flint, you look at Standing Rock, you look at areas like Alabama, um, that, you know, Alabama, their their water supplies are being polluted and it's not even gotten national coverage. Right. This campaign has been a point of mine to make sure that people understand there's one thing that we can unite on and it can be a national effort and everybody needs to think about it and that's water. Water is a basic human right and we yeah. all should be fighting for clean water because there definitely ain't no plan B once our water sources are destroyed. Yeah, right, Paula, so true. Water, uh, water is a human right, it's not a privilege. And in fact, we've had a problem here in California where the state negotiated water rights with Nestle um, a long time ago. Those rights expired, but Nestle has continued to extract water, they, which they bottle and resell, make a lot of money off of, even though these uh, rights have expired and the state has done nothing about it. And I think we could also look at Flint, Michigan. They still don't have clean water. How is this how is this even a conversation in this country? We're the wealthiest nation in the world, and we cannot supply fresh, clean water to our citizens. I mean, it's absolutely insane. Uh, also, uh, Matt, um, to get back to the eminent domain thing, I I understand the concept, and I understand the concept of doing it for public goods. But how the hell is it that the government is partnering with a private corporation and using eminent domain to benefit the private corporation? How is there no how is there no law against that? How is there no method for citizens to fight back? This seems grossly unjust. And people, I mean, they, they come into your community, destroy your water, knock your house off the foundation. You have no recourse. And, they, you know, you they've came in and they'll say they'll offer people low below property value for their houses and when you know people don't want to leave they've been there right. for generation after generation but right. we're going to stay this is that this is where we live they run them out they run them out of their community because they can't oh live God. there because they're you know they're destroying the water supplies knocking their houses off their foundations and blowing up the mountain up next to them and putting silica dust in their lungs every day yeah, one of the, the more outrageous aspects of this to me is 25 landowners who are almost all out-of-state companies, land-holding companies, own 20% of the land in West Virginia. Wow. wow. They are taxed at a much lower property tax rate than people that live here because they're, they're taxed on this big tract, like it's really not doing anything. It's just big vacant land, even though it's money in the bank for them because of the minerals right. underneath of it. And in some right. cases, the timber. And uh, you know, if, if they were taxed at a rate equal to what West Virginia residents are taxed at, we could solve a lot of our economic problems. Indeed, but they don't care because the corrupt politicians are pocketing the profits. 
Right. Uh, we, we, I think the, the biggest problem we face with all this, and it goes back to the money in politics, is that yeah. wealth in the extraction industries is concentrated. It, it flows yeah. to a few people at the top who then use mm-hmm. it to um, twist arms and to you know, right. pay for the best legislators that they can get. We're actually right. in West Virginia. We always hear about coal, 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 coal. Coal is actually our third largest in- industry in West Virginia. Yep. Timber forest product is second, and our largest industry is tourism. But little mom oh. and pop restaurants, and little family owned hotels, right? Little, you know, whitewater rafting companies, they don't have the political influence. I mean, Don Blankenship, who, who Paul has talked about, who, you know, spent right. time in prison for killing 29 people, you know, several years ago, was on vacation with a state Supreme Court justice while oh a God. case against him was in the state Supreme Court. So but he takes, yeah, takes one of the Supreme Court justices to the Bahamas. And we have another Supreme Court justice whose husband was sold a Learjet at way, 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 way below what the actual value of the aircraft was mm-hmm. by somebody who also had a case pending in the Supreme Court. Wow. And, and, and these folks probably are still there. Become, oh, yeah. <laughs> That's the worst part. Well, I think the one who went on vacation with Don Blankenship is not there, but um, the other one is still in the, the, the Supreme Court. That's amazing. Uh, it just goes to show you how much concentration of wealth and power there actually is at the top. Why aren't more Why aren't more West Virginians out there with their pitchforks? It, you know, it, it, people get complacent. I mean, they have to struggle so hard. And when you know you have right. the drug, you know the drug addiction, you have the poverty. Um, it, mm. it, it's like back in the eighties when they busted the unions and, and companies like Massey Energy came in here. Right. There was a generation that lived in poverty, and then they mm-hmm. got a livable wage. They had a house. They had a car. They had food on their table. They didn't have to stand in the welfare line. They weren't on food stamps anymore. And right. it's, you know, it's, it's to keep people oppressed. If you keep them down, you keep them oppressed, and they can be, you know, they can lay complacent. If it wasn't for some mentors of mine, um, when I first became an activist, lifting my voice, I probably wouldn't be where I am today because I felt like, what can I do and where can you go? If, if it's bigger than you and you don't know what to do about it, then you just pretty much have to live with it. And I think that's, that's, that's why a lot of West Virginians have not stood, stood up. And like I said, the political divide, um, you know, you can't have clean water and have, have a job too. That's what they convinced a lot of miners. But right. then, you know, last summer, a lot of people started losing all that stuff that they got that they'd never seen before. So, so the social climate, the political environment's changing. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's really sad. I mean, but I have faith in the people here. We're some of the most hospitable people in the world, despite what the you know the country says about us. Right. Um, we can fight about politics, but if you break down and you're hungry, somebody's going to help you, and they're going to feed you, and they're going to put a roof over your head if they can. Um, we Absolutely. are some of the most hospitable people in the world, and I have faith in us, and I've not given up on us. And I think probably Donald Trump has been our biggest awakening. He's probably been a bigger blessing for West Virginia, um, probably this country, too, because he's, he's woke a lot of people up. And God bless right. Bernie Sanders because he has to. He brought, he, brought, he brought hope to West Virginia. 
Um, yeah. There's not a lot. I don't think a you know senator from Vermont can do a lot of a lot for West Virginia, but he lit a lot of fires. Um, yeah. The last rally he held in Charleston, and I was there. I had seen so many new faces um, nice. in the movement wanting to bring change for West Virginia that it brought tears to my eyes. Um, yeah, Bernie Sanders lit a fire here. God bless him. Yeah, man. God bless Bernie. He did here as well. And I think, you know, I've been following Bernie Sanders career for years. I um, subscribed to his newsletter, even though I'm in California, when he was a state or when he was a senator, because I got more information from him than I did anybody else off of his website and his newsletter mailings. Um, So I was so happy when he threw his hat in the ring. And one of the what are the unintended consequences of that? And actually something that caught me by surprise was really seeing how bougie these bougie-tastic liberals are, how they have no problem making fun of poor people, how they're so married to Wall Street, so married to corporate cash that poor people in West Virginia are a joke to them. And then they wonder why they lose elections. I mean, since when did it become a left ideal to make fun of poor people? Since when did it become a uh, vanguard of liberalism to think that Wall Street is better than than the uh, common worker in this country? This party used to be about workers' rights, and they gave all of that away, all of it, for, for third-way neoliberal corporate money, and it's not a good look. And I think uh, Bernie Sanders really, really uh, highlighted that, really shone a light on that and the cockroaches are now scattered. So um, even though he didn't win the primary, I think what he did in this area is very valuable. And I think he started a revolution that will continue for years to come. And it needed to happen. Um, okay. And I think part and parcel to that is is Trump winning election. I think we have to examine the root causes, the reasons why Trump won. You know, uh, it's part and parcel to the income inequality in this country. Fascism always rises in times of income inequality, and we live in a time of severe income inequality. It's worse now than it was in the 20s. So, um, you know, Trump is is not the disease. Well, he's a disease, but he is mainly the symptom of a much graver, much more serious disease of income inequality. And it has failed neoliberal policies. It has failed privatization. It has failed corporate oligarchy that has led to this. And the Democratic Party is absolutely involved in that. Uh, we cannot we cannot pretend otherwise at this point. And it's about time that we got back to our roots as a party, that we got back to our worker rights, um, party for the poor, not for the rich, not for the Wall Street rights that we once were, the FDR policies. No, no, I think it's just antithetical to everything that, um, you know, we believe in as Americans, a, a corporation right. can come in. I mean, they, they say it's for the public good that it's going to create jobs, but it's creating jobs for people from Texas and Arkansas and their right, temporary right. jobs. Yeah. Uh, it's, you know, it, it, we hear, I've heard it, it explained that, oh, we need these pipelines because it's a, an issue of national defense. And, um, you know, then why are we shipping all this gas and coal overseas? If it's, if, you right. know, if we need it to um, provide for our national defense, we should be keeping it here. Right. Um, so it's no, I agree. Just it's insane. Blatant, it's an insane blatant, argument. Blatant dishonesty. And, uh, you know, we've just conditioned people to so for so long to, um, you know, vote for people who are not as bad as the other guy. Um, right. You know, the old thing that, uh, 
you know, the good is the enemy of the best. Uh, we see that a lot. The people have been holding their noses out of fear for so long. That, mm-hmm. that it's, you know, but I think we're starting to see that change. I have a daughter who's 24. Um, her generation gives me hope. Whether it's social issues, I think they see, um, you know, h- how inherently unfair our economic system is and how right. the dad is, is actually a threat to everybody's well-being. You know, when you see right. people with billions of dollars banked, you know, off season, uh, overseas and, and not in circulation, uh, you know, the, they, the younger people are aware of what the long-term consequences of that are going to be. And I think they're right. starting to wake up. And that's really encouraging for me when we've traveled around. And I see these people that are also running for a House of Delegate seats, and they're in their 20s. Indeed, it's the change we need for sure, and I'm happy to see it. Uh, the young millennials seem uh, a lot more interested in changing the way the country is being run right now. So hopefully they succeed. I want to make sure that our listeners can donate to your campaigns after hearing this podcast if they are interested. So um, what is the best way for them to do that? Uh, my blue is Paula Jean 2018. You could also find me on Facebook and Twitter, Paula Jean 2018. And my website is PaulaJean2018.com. Um, I've seen somebody on Twitter mention that um, they were taking and giving $10 to every candidate that they supported across the nation. So they was just taking that one ten dollars and every chance they could they could they could uh, donate to a progressive candidate. I kinda like that idea so I just wanted I, to throw uh, that out. So beautiful. But um yeah, um all the social media, um at Glue, mine is Paula Jean two thousand eighteen and Paula Jean two thousand eighteen dot com. Awesome. 